There you go. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to C4C Apologetics. I'm glad you're tuning in. If you've watched any of our interviews so far, we got some pretty, pretty exciting ones coming up. But this one today is by far the one that I've been looking forward to the most and the speaker that I've been looking forward to engaging with the most. Uh, what we're going to be talking about is some very difficult, some very, very uh, controversial topics possibly that a lot of skeptics, a lot of cynics will try to point out to show the immorality of God. And we're going to be talking with Dr. Paul Copan here. And I want to give you a little bit about uh, his background real quick. He's the pleasure chair of philosophy and uh, ethics at Palm Beach Atlantic University. He holds a bachelor's degree in biblical studies from Columbia International University, a master of arts degree in philosophy of religion, and an MDiv, both from Trinity International. He's got a doctor of philosophy degree in philosophy from Marquette, and he's been a visiting scholar at Oxford University. Dr. Copan has authored over 30 books and then some co-authored with one of them being the most, one of the most popular, more popular ones is, Is God a Moral Monster? Then also he had authored, co-authored a book that I personally had to read through, uh, which was a fascinating book, The Gospel in the Marketplace of Ideas, uh, that he had co-authored as well. And so Dr. Paul Copan, I just want to thank you for being with us today. I appreciate it. Thanks for the warm invitation and welcome. So we met each other, uh, or actually I should say I met you through Christian Apologetics Alliance, I think it was Facebook group. And like I said, just right off the bat, reaching out to you about some of these questions. I appreciate your humbleness and your ability to just reach out and try to get some of this information out to, you know, this ministry as well. And today we're going to be looking at some topics that may be somewhat un unfamiliar to a lot of people, but probably some things that you... I think you said as well, you haven't received very frequently these questions asked. And so before we jump into any of this, could you just speak a little bit about who you are in the ministry and how did you really get involved in just apologetics from this moral side? I appreciate your asking. Uh, I have been interested in philosophy, particularly since my time when I was at Trinity Seminary where I was going for a Master of Divinity degree and then took a class in philosophy with Stuart Hackett, who had been a mentor to William Lane Craig, actually, uh, who's also there at Trinity Seminary, uh, but uh, took this class with Stuart Hackett on religious epistemology, and it was a wonderful, eye-opening, mind-expanding class that led me into getting a degree in philosophy in addition to my other master's degree. Uh, and then eventually would go on to get a get a PhD in philosophy at Marquette, as you mentioned. And I was very interested in the issue related to the moral argument for God's existence, and uh, and so issues related to ethics, morality, uh, and bringing the question of God into it, especially after September 11th, uh, when the new atheists were blasting away at the God of the Old Testament. And so I wrote an article on the question of uh, that they were question that they were raising called uh, is Yahweh a moral monster published in Philosophia Christi and then that just gradually led to the book uh, is God a moral monster and thankfully given my background in biblical studies and theology uh, this was just I was able to craft a book that uh, that took the biblical languages into account and, and brought uh, some of this cross-fertilization of ideas 
and disciplines uh, into that book. And just incidentally, I'm working on uh, another book that's kind of like a sequel or supplement to that book, covering a lot of the questions that I couldn't cover uh, the first time around. Uh, and so that uh, hopefully will be out next year. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Yeah, like I said, today we're going to be talking uh, about a lot of these difficult topics that Part of C4C ministry is not necessarily to engage or debate with atheists, but is to help the Christian be able to think through their faith, understand more about why they believe what they believe and how to really stand firm on the beliefs that they hold in that scripture actually records. And so I know most people ask you the question about genocide, and we're going to get there. That'll be one of the questions, but hopefully... There's going to be a lot of other questions that are very uncommon. And if you're watching, we're going to put timestamps in the description. So if you want to jump to a particular question, there'll be a, a timestamp there and you can jump to that also. The first question, there's about 13 of them because 13 is a lucky number, right? <laughs> but uh, the first question I like to just get kind of slow rolling softball question. On your website, it mentions that you're an analytical philosopher. What is that? What is an analytical philosopher? Yeah, the analytic philosophical tradition is primarily rooted in the uh, Anglo-British uh, American tradition, which uh, focuses on uh, conceptual clarity through, say, rigorous philosophical argumentation, uh, the use of logic, uh, even bringing in mathematics, people like uh, Bertrand Russell, uh, and and others were involved in bringing this to the uh, to the fore, and it's often distinguished from, say, continental philosophy that's found on the uh, the continent of uh, Europe, uh, in which there, it, it, again, it is uh, you know there is a a, a very distinct uh, difference in terms of how one understands or goes about doing the task of philosophy. Uh, there is more of a, a kind of uh, contextual, indeed, sometimes uh, a critical uh, understanding of even philosophy itself and, uh, and the use of reason uh, and, uh, and sometimes being held in suspicion uh, as part of a certain enlightenment project. And so anyway, there are those contrasts and uh, there is a, I can go into more detail, but you just do a Wikipedia search or something like that to look at what analytic philosophy is. But that's, uh, again, it's the quest of, uh, for that conceptual clarity, uh, the use of words, definitions, uh, logical argumentation and so forth, and, and, and attempting to get a, a greater precision uh, of, uh, of, of those concepts and understanding that uh, those arguments as they, uh, as they flow logically. Okay, that makes, makes a little more sense now to me. And uh, I'm not a Wikipedia person personally, but if you're saying they got a good article on that. I'm well, I'm just saying it's a kind of a quick, a quick snatch that you can go to. I typically yeah. don't uh, refer to it, but sometimes it can be helpful. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes for sure. So before we actually jump in and we're going to be talking about slavery, right? Lying spirits, pedophilia, genocide, human sacrifice, bashing babies against quote-unquote rocks, miscarriages, abortions, things like that. Before we jump into these very uh, difficult topics, if you will, is there anything you want to preface or say before we get into the first deep question? As we look at the Old Testament, we need to keep in mind that uh, we are not looking at the ideals for God's people for all time. Uh, 
that needs to be understood because some people will look at the Old Testament laws and they'll say, well, I have trouble with this or I don't understand this or this seems to be so far removed from my own culture and that's understandable. Uh, but we also need to remember what Jesus said in, in Matthew 19, 8, where he said that Moses permitted certain things because of the hardness of human hearts. It wasn't because these were ideal laws, uh, but because of human fallenness, human sin, human hard-heartedness. These were just some of the realities that, uh, that uh, needed to be understood. Uh, so rather than taking the view that these, uh, these laws, which and even as you read them in the, in the uh, book of Moses, the book of Moses, you see that there are some tweaks and modifications and so forth or supplements to what goes on earlier. In fact, that alleged uh, rape uh, instance is one that kind of elaborates on a previous mention from Deuteronomy going back to Exodus. Uh, and so we need to understand these, uh, these sort of, there, there's a certain dynamism to them, uh, that these are not necessarily wooden and fixed and, and permanent, uh, but there are some modifications that also go along with those laws. And, and so we need to understand that kind of a context as well. But, but anyway, that's just uh, perhaps one major qualifier uh, but we can we can jump in as you like. Okay, so like you're saying, like Moses with the institution of ability to have a divorce wasn't because God had planned for divorce. God's plan for marriage was for life, but because of the hardness of their hearts, God had permitted and established a way for a legal bill of divorcement. So, all right. right. So the first question is going to be, uh, I'd like to think we're going to go from really the softer ones to the more difficult ones, if you will with the first one talking about slavery. Now I'm just gonna read my questions verbatim so that everybody can capture exactly what it is. But Exodus 21 verses 20 and 21 says, if a man smite a servant or his maid with a rod and he die under his hand, he shall surely be punished. If he continue a day or two, he shall not be punished for he is his money. Now I'm referencing the King James version and everything, but is God here calling slaves property of slave owners? And is God allowing slave owners to beat their slaves without repercussion as long as they don't die? Right. That's yeah, a common question that the critic will raise. You can beat him to within an inch of his life, and therefore because he hasn't died after two or three days, then, then you're in the clear. Uh, a few things to note here. Uh, first, we're talking about uh, not... Southern antebellum slavery, we're talking about indentured servitude, which was common in Israel. You'd work for six years and then be freed the seventh. Uh, you are not allowed to keep one any longer than that. Uh, secondly, uh, the notion of servitude in ancient Israel uh, was also one that arose not because you were born into some sort of a slave class. Uh, it was actually because you were impoverished. You based, you sold yourself. You uh, contracted yourself out. Uh, so the language of this person being his silver or this person being you know selling himself, etc. It's not a, a reference to that person's lack of dignity or that person's being an object. It's simply referring to a transaction. Uh, like we would use for our sports teams. This person was sold to another uh, team or uh, such so-and-so is the owner of that sports team. That's uh, the, really the way to look at it. So when we compare biblical servitude 
to the antebellum South, they are worlds apart. Uh, the, the, you know, in, in ancient Israel, the employer could not, or master as it were, uh, could not do whatever he wanted with a servant. Earlier in Exodus 21, uh, if you gouged out an eye of your servant, or if you knocked out his tooth, then the servant could go free. So you can permanently injure someone. Uh, that person would be able to go out debt-free uh, and without having any further, you know, that contract was basically negated because he was injured by uh, the person who, for whom he is contracting. Also, uh, keep in mind, too, in that passage that you quoted, the, uh, the employer, again, the, you know, there's the term avad, servant, uh, relates to being a worker, uh, it's related to the word, the verb to work. And uh, so the employer, the person who's hiring, uh, if he, if he, it says if he strikes him and the servant dies immediately, then the master uh, is actually to be put to death. He is to be punished. Uh, that is, so, so this is the typical term for capital punishment. So we're not dealing with a property crime here. We're dealing with a person crime. This person's rights have been violated. He has taken the life of a person in whose image, uh, uh, in God, he's been made in God's image. And so, uh, so that is something that also needs to be figured in. Well, what about this idea that if he walks around for a couple of days uh, and there's no further injury, then there should be no punishment? Well, the, again, the point is, here, it's in the context of accidental injury. If you read just a few verses prior, you see that there's a certain medical fee that is given to someone who has been injured. And so that medical fee is an indicator to the judge that there is a, that goodwill is being shown, that the medical expenses are being taken care of. And according to some scholars, that is what is being referenced in that next text where it says that is his property or that is his silver. Uh, it's not necessarily saying that that person is his silver, although you can maybe loosely understand in that way that you, if you injure your servant, you're hurting your pocketbook, you're hurting your silver. Uh, you're, you know, so, so that's, it's a, just a dumb thing to harm that person who, whom you've hired to work for you. Uh, but, but again, you can say that that person you know, won't be punished. Why? Because he paid the medical fee. That is his silver. So it could be referring back to Harry Hoffner of University of Chicago uh, and a seriologist uh, said that this is a, the most likely reference, that it's referring to that medical fee that when the judge looks at it, he will say, oh, you were showing goodwill, taking care of the medical bills of the person you injured. Therefore, I know that it was not uh, of malicious intent and so forth. So again, judges were able to make these sorts of decisions. They, they were kind of woodenly following uh, this, this legislation so they could make their own judgments about these things and read through anything that looks suspicious and, and, and render a judgment accordingly. You see, that's fascinating because right now you're already enlightening everybody as far as uh, just word evolution. The word evolution and slavery and what we have in our mindset today is a particular type of slavery. But back then with indentured slavery is totally different. And then bringing in the context and the passages, the whole 2020 rule, immediate surrounding content, you know, fascinating. So that's probably one of the clearest ways I've heard of the answer to this passage. And I appreciate that. The next one was one that I threw in uh, based on our youth pastor's recommendation, but it has to deal with the subject of right. And in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 28 and 29, 
could you explain why God would command a right victim to have to marry the right, uh, the right, the person that created the rapist? Rapist. Yeah. Rapist. yeah. yeah. Um, again, this is a parallel passage to uh, to uh, to Exodus. On Exodus, where you see this kind of being, you know, highlighting a little bit more, elaborating a little bit more, but basically saying the same kind of thing. And in the the Exodus parallel, uh, we see that there is uh, there are instances of one adultery. Uh, there is also rape of a of a woman who is uh, out in the country and she can't uh, she can't protect herself and so forth. Uh, and then there is the, the instance of what is what a number of scholars see as not rape, but seduction. Uh, we might call it statutory rape, that there is something consensual about it. It's not as, you know, because the, the verb that's used is, is one that is softer than, uh, than that of the previous incident of, uh, of rape. Uh, and it, notice too that it says that if they are discovered, not if he is. You know, uh, sorry, it's, 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 some versions say if they are discovered, but it's actually if he, you know, if if he is discovered, that is that this person is, you know, um, it, well, well, yeah, uh, you know, it, it should be understood in terms of they are both involved, they are discovered, and uh, and what is going on here is that she is. Uh, you know, a virgin, uh, you know, a, and, and so she is, therefore, by the seduction, she, in a sense, loses the family value, the economic uh, contribution that she can make. There's a certain shame factor that goes along with this. And as you note that, that there is a price to be paid for that, that when, because there has been this seduction, uh, this man has to own up and step into the role of being the provider. Uh, and so this is, it's not as though this person who has caused this terrible thing to happen to this girl that whom he raped in a back alley. Uh, it, it's a far different scenario than that. There is a consensual dimension to this, even though we would, you know, in our day talk about this as being uh, consensual, but with a minor. So statutory rape rather than uh, the you know, the back alley rape that usually comes to mind uh, in, 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 in modern day discussion. So that needs to be understood. And when you understand it in that, in that site, in, in that setting, then the, uh, and again, it's, it's not as though the person has to, uh, you know, uh, that the woman has to marry uh, that man. Uh, this is something that's also decided between the father and the daughter and so forth. A lot of things are taken into consideration, so it's not as though you have to, but, uh, but again, there is that, uh, that possibility. That's analytical philosopher, right? Breaking down to the language and looking at the words, finding out, okay, is this right really right, or is this a consensual statutory type deal? Everything. And if anything, to me, it sort of shows the providence of God in protecting and providing for that woman as well, because correct me if I'm wrong, back in that day, if somebody would find out that this woman was not a virgin and she was living this promiscuous life, probably a lot of people wouldn't betroth her, correct me if I'm wrong. Right. Yes. Not even if she's lived a loose life, but if she has had this, uh, if she has been violated uh, or if she has engaged in sexual uh, intercourse, this would be, this would, uh, she would be uh, 
hands-off, as it were. Uh, people would not want to have that sort of a, an association. Again, the shame factor as well. So, so yeah, there, there, there is that uh, strong consideration. Now, this next one is one that, you know, somewhat troubled me. Not really troubled me, but very curious, if you will. And it has to do with what's being termed a lying spirit, at least in the King James. And in First Kings chapter 22, verses 20 through 22, we get this, this uh, picture of like a divine council, I think, as uh, Michael Heiser likes to point out and everything. But it talks about God sending out a lying spirit to King Ahab to entice him and deceive him. Could you explain what a lying spirit is? And if God is against lying and intentional deception, how could God justly send a lying spirit to King Ahab? Well, I would say that, uh, well, just a number of things to keep in mind here. Uh, one is that Ahab is no friend of the truth. Uh, he is someone who wants to have these false pro prophesy peace, uh, wants them to say happy things and so forth. So he surrounds, him, surrounds himself with, uh, with people who are going to say peace, peace when there is no peace, and, uh, and, and basically scratch his, uh, his tickling ears uh, so they will say what he wants them to say. So basically, God is saying, "Okay, I'm going to let you go down and uh, and continue that process that to which Ahab was already committed." Uh, so he's going to. It is kind of like what God uh, allows in Second Thessalonians, uh, where it refers to the this um, uh, God is going to send upon them a uh, a delusion. Why? Because they did not love the truth. So God basically allows them to continue in their ways. If you want to put it another way, it's sort of like the Pharaoh from uh, repenting. Uh, Pharaoh was a nasty guy in the first place, and so this is just simply conceding the choices that uh, to the choices that Pharaoh had already made, his resistance to the one true God, and saying, "Okay, I'm going to uh, I'm going to pull away my restraints and, uh, and and let you have it your way." And in the same way, this uh, sending of the lying spirit or allowing this lying spirit to go and to, to deceive is just a picture of someone who's already surrounded himself by lies and that God simply says, okay, who's going to be the next one to let him be led astray by further lies? So that's the kind of picture that we ought to understand here uh, rather than this is you know, God is the one who is, uh, is uh, trying to uh, mislead and keep people away from the truth and so forth. No, they've already, uh, they've already succumbed to lies, and so God allows that to continue. The hardening of the heart aspect of it. Now, I don't know if you can tell over there, but I'm getting a bit of lag. Uh, sometimes you're freezing, whether I'm freezing something. The audio keeps... It's good so far. But uh, so if we get disconnected, we'll reconnect and try it again, but uh, at least where we're at. So the next question has to do with pedophilia. And here in America, and uh, there's been a rising push for pedophilia, the illegal pedophilia. They're trying to lower the age as far as uh, uh, close in on the age gap for consensual statutory right type deal and everything. Mm -hmm. Can you explain the difference? between the pedophilia push we're seeing here in America today and the fact that at least in the first century and most likely hundreds of years before that, that many males married teenage girls. Could you explain, is there a difference or is this the same? Uh, could you speak on that? 
Sure. Uh, when it comes to uh, these sorts of distinctions, uh, yeah, there were times when people would marry uh, younger. Uh, but I think that the, uh, you know, much of the issue has to do with uh, one, well, of course, uh, legality and sometimes the trauma uh, that comes with uh, a you know, against someone who is older with someone, say, considerably uh, younger, uh, that, uh, that, there, that what we have here is, uh, you know, a kind of a defined period of, uh, of childhood that when a person becomes of legal age, then that person can make certain decisions on his own, that person is considered an autonomous adult to uh, perhaps devote, to, uh, to serve in the army, uh, etc., and uh, and so there is this basic recognition that uh, that this is a yes it's I mean could it be potentially seventeen and a half sure I, I understand that but the the limit is set at age eighteen and this is to prevent uh, people from taking advantage of those who are not of legal age so there is in some ways a technicality could it be the day before a person's eighteenth birthday well well sure. Uh, and in some cases, in some states, one requires special permission to maybe marry at age 16 and so forth. Uh, but uh, there, is, there is also the a great concern that, uh, that young people not be taken advantage of and, uh, and, and that they can be uh, messed up for life uh, when they are being sexually uh, used by, by older people. Uh, so I would, I would simply, uh, you know, uh, put it in uh, along these uh, these sorts of terms that uh, there have that we are dealing with someone who is to be protected uh, by the law, and that the uh, the those who are trying to engage in the lowering the age of consent are removing some of those protections. And of course, when it comes to the area of sexuality, I mean, voting is one thing, but the issue of sexuality uh, is, is another. And, uh, and, and this, uh, this, you know, I mean, clearly uh, harm comes to those who engage in, in you know, who are act, in, in, engaged in acts of pedophilia and so forth. Uh, so, so anyway, I, I would just say that uh, we ought to hold the line and protect them uh, as, as adults, as I said, sometimes that's been pushed down in some states to allow for someone to marry at, say, age 16. Uh, but that should be the exception rather than the rule, uh, especially when it comes to sexuality. Okay. Moving on. We got about six left. So we're making pretty good time. 30 minutes. So murder. Second Kings chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. Reveals an account where Elisha is going up to Bethel, and some kids become mocking him and calling him, Go up, you bald head. Meanwhile, Elisha curses these kids, and two she bears come out and maws them. Is this justifiable homicide self defense? Did Elisha do this on his own volition? Did Elisha speak on behalf of God to do this? Is, this, is there more to the story? And did those kids actually die? Yeah, lots of great questions packed in there. You should add add more questions to that list, I think. Um, <laughs> but uh, just briefly, uh, there is uh, Elijah, 
the mentor of Elisha has just departed. He has gone up. And uh, again, uh, First King, Second Kings 1.8 says that Elisha was a very hairy man in contrast to Elisha. So hence the reference to being bald uh, or having less hair. And uh, you also have mentioned as you go back, it, it, it mentions that these are lads or uh, young ones. Uh, well, the, those terms are used for David in 1 Samuel 16, who is described as a, 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 a man of valor, a warrior. Uh, it's, also, you know, it's also referred to, uh, we see uh, that King uh, Rehoboam in uh, 1 Kings chapter 12 is referred to uh, you know, his younger friends with whom he grew up. Uh, it probably has a sense of these kind of ro- a royal house uh, that uh, that his young advisors are superseding the elders in the community in giving advice to this new king, and so they are called, you know, lads or young ones. Probably, basically, the term can be used for any male who is unmarried, who doesn't have his own household, but he can be an adult like David, uh, having been a valiant warrior. Um, in reference to the uh, to Bethel. Uh, in 2 Kings 2, uh, the same, you know, again, this term is used elsewhere uh, in these historical books of those who are also part of a royal house like Rehoboam's friends. Uh, so these are probably, uh, some scholars have, have argued, uh, these are people who are part of a royal house, uh, unmarried, but yet you know, young adults, uh, people who are capable of advising a king, and uh, even this term is used of Joseph, who's a 17-year-old back in the book of Genesis. Uh, it's used of, uh, you, know, you know, again, uh, you know, the, there's quite, a, quite an age differential, so to say that they're little kids uh, who are just poking fun at a prophet. Uh, that's, you know, we have, to, we have to qualify that. Also, keep in mind that in Leviticus 26, there is a reference to uh, if you know, the curses of the law, that if you disobey God, if you abandon the covenant, then God is going to send wild beasts so that you will be bereft of your children. Just previously, Elisha has gone to like Jericho, and there were there were um, waters that uh, were poisonous, and so he makes them fresh and clean, and so it says that the the land that had become bereft. Uh, is now become fruitful. And again, referring back to Leviticus 26. And so rather than seeing Elisha, who now comes to Bethel, rather than seeing Elisha as a potential blessing, they are mocking him. They are cursing him. They are disregarding his presence there. And, uh, and so uh, as a result of this, uh, that you know, there is the judgment that is promised in uh, Leviticus, uh, and also Deuteronomy, that wild beasts will attack your children so that you'll be bereft of them. Uh, so basically, God is keeping his promises that when you abandon the covenant, when you abandon those, who, when you don't listen to those who are reinforcing the covenant, these types of things are going to happen. Uh, so that's basically what we have going on there. Uh, I know we've got more questions, but hopefully that gives you a picture of something uh, much more going on here. Uh, did they die? Uh, we're not told. That we're just told that they were that they were mauled. Uh, and uh, again, the the point is made. It's interesting that the term, uh, even the number forty-two, uh, 
is used later on in chapter 10, uh, where Omri's house, the the royal house of Omri, uh, is is killed by uh, Jehu, uh, and the number of people who are killed in the royal house is 42. Mm. So there's probably this parallel to this kind of royal house at Bethel, kind of the center of it. Perhaps they were even children of priests, uh, that there is this religious theological component uh, that also needs to be taken into consideration. Fascinating. Analytical philosopher, you know, importance of word studies and everything. Definitely like when you're looking at that word lad and, and tying it into David and Joseph and how is this word used elsewhere in the semantic range? Fascinating. And then I like how you tied in the Mosaic Covenant, if I'm not mistaken, back in Deuteronomy 28, Mount, Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim, blessings and curses. And God says, this is what's going to happen if you do well or if you don't do well. Uh, so fascinating. Moving on to some more difficult ones. And this is one you probably get quite often, but I'm a fan of the book of the judges. I still want uh, our senior pastor here to do a sermon on Judge Ehud. And we know Ehud was a left-handed assassin, but when he uh, killed King Eglon, it says in the King James that the dirt came out. And I personally want him to preach a message about King Eglon. But when we're in the book of Judges, there's this individual by the name of, I'm going to butcher it, Japheth, 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 however you want to say it. Japheth. There we go. So he makes a foolish vow says, whichever comes out of my house, I'm going to sacrifice his burnt offering. Just so happens, his daughter comes out. She goes, she bewells her virginity, and then we don't know whether she was sacrificed or if she had a perpetual state of virginity. Uh, could you elaborate on that story, on that uh, historical event, and what do you believe really happened with that foolish vow? Yeah. Uh, most scholars... Uh, take it that uh, Jephthah did uh, indeed offer his daughter as a burnt offering, and that this was indeed a foolish vow, uh, and that this is what happens when there is no king in Israel and everyone does what is right in his own eyes. So it's not as though this is seen as a uh, you know, a, a an example for everybody to follow. It's it's seen. It's just assumed that this is a uh, a terrible thing that was done, and this is uh, yeah, just how low things were descending uh, in the land of Israel. Now there are others who do argue that this was simply a forfeiture of her virginity. And, and again, there is a specific connection to uh, the bewailing of her virginity, not simply her, her life, uh, but simply the virginity. And so basically uh, setting aside her, her status as a potentially married woman and forever uh, forgoing, forgoing that. So there are some scholars who do take that view, but it's not the, the majority view. But in any event, uh, this sort of an act is not being commended uh, in the book of Judges, it's simply outlining or including this story as part of the decline of the nation of Israel during the time of the Judges. And when you get to the last four chapters, it's you, know, you have these uh, terrible things that are happening, uh, the man with his concubine uh, or second-tier wife, uh, the, uh, the, the um, a warfare with the Benjamites and so forth. So all sorts of terrible things happening. But again, it just you had that repeated line that uh, everyone do, is doing what is right in his own eyes. 
You know, and that's, I like how you pointed it out that it, number one, God doesn't commend it. Nowhere do we read that God condones it. Uh, and that's the wonderful thing about this right here is the fact that this sin nature, this fallen nature, the poor choices is not just unique to me. It's unique to David. It's unique to everybody written in here. And so I love how mm -hmm. God records not only just the best attributes of people, but even how fallen they can actually be as well. And sure. that's really a case of what will happen when we don't have God as Christ as Lord and governing or guiding our life and everything. And like you said, mm -hmm. the repeating pattern is everybody did what was right within their own eyes. And they have this sin repeat cycle. So mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you the question that you probably get asked the most. Is this the one on genocide you get asked the most, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I, I do get quite a bit on the, the genocide question for sure. Yeah, I want to specific. That's... I don't want... I don't want to focus on the Canaanites. I want to specifically focus on 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse number 3. God mm -hmm. commanded Saul to kill every man, woman, animal, and infant of the Amalekites. However, it appears in verse 11 that God's displeased with Saul because he did not obey God's command fully. Therefore, from my understanding, skeptics and cynics will say that Saul is more moral than God. How would you explain that? Well, a few things to perhaps put this into context. Uh, the word itself, utterly destroy, uh, does not always mean utterly destroy. Uh, it can sometimes simply mean to set apart from uh, ordinary use, to set aside, uh, to remove from ordinary use. For example, at the end of Leviticus, the term is used for a servant, for a field, for an animal. Uh, that are set aside from ordinary use, but it's not as though the field is destroyed or something like that. It's simply reserved now for priestly uh, or tabernacle slash temple use, uh, but it's not as though there is, there is death involved in this process. And uh, if you look at the recent, uh, fairly recent book by uh, John and Harvey Walton, they argue that it has more to do with identity removal than you, like Nazi Germany. Uh, you could, if you remove the Nazi identity, uh, tearing down the symbols and the hierarchy and the monuments and so forth, uh, you can still have a lot of German people remaining behind, but the Nazi ideology has been removed. And so they would argue that that's what it means to uh, harem uh, a, uh, a people or an identity. You remove that identity and replace it with something else. And so God's primary purpose was not so much uh, getting rid of a people, uh, they were simply to be driven out, uh, like the Canaanites, uh, but to ultimately, if they were to stay in the land, that their identity was to be removed so that they worship the one true God. And we do see people like Rahab and the Gibeonites and uh, even strangers in Joshua chapter 8 who are there at the covenant renewal uh, ceremony where Joshua's reading the law, uh, that they are identifying with the one true God. And so uh, God leaves open the possibility for people to repent, for people to align themselves with the one true God. When it comes to 1 Samuel 15, uh, we need to understand, first of all, and in, in, in just prior to that, in verse 48, uh, the Amalekites had already been raiding the nation of Israel. So it wasn't as though these were really nice people, uh, they, minding their own business. Uh, they were, you know, think, as, as David Lamb says, when you think of the Amalekites, think Nazis. Think people who are out to uh, undermine, to destroy uh, the nation of Israel. 
Secondly, we need to remember too that the uh, that even when Saul is uh, you know when Saul is commanded to utterly destroy or however that's to be translated, man, woman, young and old, and so forth, you can have that mentioned even though there are no old people, no women, no children there. In fact, uh, Saul was about to fight a pitched battle at a citadel, and he tells the Kenites, hey, we don't have an issue with you. Uh, we're going to fight against the Amalekites. Well, do you think women are going to be sticking around if they know that there's a pitched battle? Uh, no, they're the first ones to leave. But again, that language is still being used there. Furthermore, Saul himself says you know, that not, not only does he say that he utterly destroyed the Amalekites, the narrator says that Saul utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but just simply kept some animals from that battle for himself. So he had done what the Lord had commanded, and you know, but just kept some of those prized animals for himself. Uh, again, wanting to make a name for himself. That's really what the point of 1 Samuel 15 is, and he keeps King Agag alive. Again, kind of like the prize, because he wants, Saul is wanting the honor for himself. Uh, and so, uh, so his sin is compared to divination and idolatry and rebellion. So, so that's the kind of thing that Saul is doing. Uh, it's not just some sort of a token I happen to keep, keep that person alive. No, this was, this was definitely for Saul's own uh, making a name for himself. Also, we see that, you know, one, the narrator tells us that Saul destroyed the Amalekites. But on the other hand, we see that at the end of the book of uh, 1 Samuel, that the Amalekites are still around. David fights against the Amalekites in the same large terrain that Saul did in his first battle in, in chapter 15. Now David is fighting against the Amalekites, and 400 soldiers end up escaping. So what we see going on here, and, and we see this throughout the book of Joshua too, there, is, uh, there are no survivors left. They're utterly destroyed, or however that's to be tra translated. But then we see them appearing later on in the book, later on in the chapter, sometimes even in the same verse. So this is, we need to understand too, the larger context of utter destruction or leaving alive nothing that breathes. In the ancient Near Eastern context, you can use that language. Uh, you know, the Egyptians used it, the Assyrians used it, et cetera. And you have that language of, you know, there were none left. There was only the, the king remaining with his troops, etc. Well, from what we know of history, these Egyptian or Assyrian battles and so forth, some of them were just narrow victories. But yet the language is used of utter destruction. We left alive nothing that breathed and so forth. So that's simply part of the hyperbolic war genre of those ancient texts. And so we need to keep that in mind. And we certainly see that reinforced as we read certain texts in, in the Old Testament where there, is, there are no survivors. And then we see those people popping up later on in the same book or same chapter. Definitely. It just, it speaks to the necessity, not only of understanding the language and the fact on how the word is used elsewhere in the reapportioning of what it's supposed to be used for, but also the context and understanding, okay, maybe this is a topic study and we're going to study the Amalekites, find out, okay, they were destroyed here, but they're still here. So maybe this destroyed isn't what I think of in my English language, but there's something more to it to get this full picture. Right. So I love that. All right. So next one is going to be talking about child sacrifice. And it's not long before an atheist, a skeptic, a cynic will go ahead and paint God as immoral because of Abraham, the command of Abraham sacrificing Isaac upon Mount Moriah. 
Could you elaborate on that uh, historical event? And does that actually picture God as an immoral, unjust God with that command? Or is there actually a picture of love there? What What's happening? Sure. Well, remember that in this text, uh, in Genesis 22, uh, Abraham has already been reminded that uh, his other son, Ishmael, uh, that, again, the same language is used from chapter 21, where he gets up early, loads up the donkey, and sends Ishmael and Hagar away. Now, what would normally be done, what would normally be thought is that, oh, they're going into a dangerous place. They're not going to survive. They're going out into the wilderness. Well, God reassures Abraham that, you know, yes, send them away. Listen to Sarah. There's too much tension in the household. It'll be okay with them. Uh, I will make of Ishmael a great nation. So he could confidently send off the, the mother and son, knowing that they would be cared for by God. So that's when we come to now the same language used in chapter 22. And keep in mind that Isaac is the miracle child that God had promised, and the one through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now God is telling Abraham that, you know, this miracle child I'm asking you to uh, offer up to me, to give your own son. And so he's asking Abraham to trust him. And keep in mind that Abraham, when he is about to go to Mount Moriah, he tells his servants, we will go and worship and we will return. So already in, embedded within this narrative is the understanding that God is going to do something. God is going to guarantee that Isaac is going to be that blessing to the nations because God has already been at work. He has produced this miracle. Uh, he has promised Abraham all along. So there's this longstanding history that Abraham has in his interaction with God and seeing him fulfill those promises. So a lot of people, what they want to do is simply pluck this incident in chapter 22, verse 1, and begin there rather than looking at the entire narrative and saying, oh, this is the bigger picture of what God is doing. It's not as though Abraham wakes up in the middle of the night one night and, uh, and, and, and has this nightmare and, you know, God told me to do this. Uh, no, there's been a history of, God, of Abraham's interaction with God. So he knows who God is. He knows what God has promised. And he trusts in those promises. Uh, and so, so, when, when, so, yes, under normal circumstances, you don't do that. But God was telling Abraham to do this. Uh, and God had already told Abraham that blessing would come through Isaac. Now, we need to understand as we make ethical decisions that, uh, that we look at the, you know, all the facts, not simply some of them. Under ordinary circumstances, yes, this, you know, fathers should not do this to their sons. Are there other facts, however, that, sh that, that we need to take into consideration that go beyond what an ordinary father should and shouldn't do? Well, yes, there are. There are the promises of God. Uh, there are other considerations that God has given, the miracle that God has performed. Those are also facts that need to be accounted for as we look at the broader decision-making uh, process that Abraham is going through. Uh, it's sort of like, I mean, if, if this were one of our facts that we had to deal with, uh, you know, here's an example of, say, a kid when he turns 18 years of age. What if on that day, when he turns 18, that birthday, that 
you could do whatever you want to it. And he would always, you know, he could eat, he could be killed, he could be maimed, kind of like in Groundhog Day, where uh, the 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 main actor is, you know, getting electrocuted. He's jumping in front of cars and so forth. But the same, but the next day he's back on the scene. Well, if that's the case, if that were the scenario, would suicide really mean anything if he keeps on? showing up back on stage, uh, well, no, that would, wouldn't that change the moral dimension? Wouldn't that change the, the, uh, the ethical scenario? Of course it would. In the same way, if God is making this promise, if God is, is saying this is what's going to happen, uh, that no matter what, what you do to Isaac, I'm going to bring him back. He's going to show up. Uh, he's going to be the one through whom the promise is fulfilled. Well, yeah, we need to take those, those other facts into consideration. Uh, so anyway, those perhaps uh, that illustration might be helpful as we try to process what's going on uh, in the scenario with Abraham and Isaac. Would you also agree and uh, believe that there's validity in the fact that Isaac would have been old enough, seen by carrying all the wood and making the sure. himself as well, that he was very uh, volitional in regards to that also? Sure, yes, would have cooperated with this, that he is, you know, for him to carry the wood uh, indicates that he would be of uh, significant age uh, to be able to do that, yeah. And something that Abraham probably didn't just push him down and tie him up, but that Isaac did it willingly, and then... Yeah, Isaac could have overpowered him. Yeah, so, exactly. And then the Hebrews Hall of Faith does really report, like you were talking about, that Abraham trusted that if God res needed to, he would resurrect Isaac because of the Abrahamic covenant that he had made with Isaac and the seed promise. So exactly, yeah. this next one is is an interesting one, and it's found actually in the Psalms, and it's about uh, bashing babies. Skeptics like it, it. It's interesting how skeptics do want to memorize verses but not for the sake of their growth and their advocation and their coming to a knowledge of Jesus Christ, but to try to poke at Christians. And this is one they tend to memorize. Psalm 137 verse 9 says, Happy shall he be that takes and dashes your little ones against the stones. Or as the ESV puts it, Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Is God really blessing somebody? who bashes a baby against a rock or is there something else going on here? Yeah, there are at least four different ways to understand this. Uh, one is that the, you know, we just take this as hyperbole, that it's not as though the psalmist in the heat of the emotion being in exile in uh, Babylon, having been mocked by his Babylonian tormentors and also uh, remembering that Edom, his own flesh and blood brother, uh, the descendants of Esau, actually uh, helped deliver the Israelites over to their captors. Uh, that's all part of the psalm. So there's a lot of, uh, there's mocking, there's taunting, uh, there's a betrayal, there's a displacement, and so forth. So it could simply be understood, you know, these little ones, you know, if they're little babies, that uh, that this is simply saying, you know, I'm angry and I feel like just wipe them all out, Lord, including the babies. Uh, so that's, you know, you see hyperbole all over. It's sort of like uh, the trees of the field clapping their hands and so forth. Uh, no one takes those sorts of things literally. So that hyperbolic metaphorical understanding is certainly uh, 
you know, a, a plausible way of interpreting it. Secondly, uh, we read in, in Isaiah 14 and elsewhere that the Babylonians, when they came through, they did dash infants uh, down and kill them. Uh, so they dashed infants to pieces. And the psalmist is simply saying in this case, Lord, do to them what they did to us. Uh, that they are, uh, and, and that's, that could simply be saying, Lord, bring just recompense for the way that they treated us. Uh, they were ruthless, Lord, let them be treated ruthlessly, etc. Uh, so that's uh, you know, a, a second possibility. Thirdly, uh, and I think this is getting at something of a more political dimension, where the psalmist is saying, Lord, bring an end to the Babylonian reign of terror. Bring, re, remove the, those royal sons from the household. Uh, don't let those little ones rise up and continue the tyranny. So basically stopping the line of tyranny uh, with, these, uh, with these young ones. So it basically has to do with stop the royal house from uh, continuing on, from prospering and so forth. Uh, or it could simply be that it's referring to there's, you know, daughter Jerusalem, daughter of Babylon and so forth, not referring to literal children, uh, but rather it's more a picture of, as one, one scholar says, the other part referring to the soldiers who continue the tyranny that even though use the term children, it's simply those who belong to, you know, the daughter of Jerusalem or the daughter of Babylon, in this case, Babylon, those who are carrying out the tyranny. But in either case, whether it's the royal sons or soldiers, that uh, the psalmist is saying, Lord, bring an end to the tyranny, bring an end to the oppression. In fact, when um, Darius, the, uh, 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 or Cyrus, the Mede, Medo-Persian em, you know, emperor, came through and took over Babylon in this sudden, dramatic uh, uh, take, you know, takeover of, uh, of Babylon. The people of Babylon were actually cheering for this new victor. They were mourning the loss of these oppressors uh, who had been ruling over them. They were actually cheering on those who had come in to displace this line of terror. So, so again, I think that puts in perspective the the kind of uh, you know oppression that the that the that the Babylonians did bring, and so these those who had been oppressed were saying, "Bring an end to the oppression," uh, and using the language of uh, of uh, bringing an end to those royal sons who are uh, who, if they rise up, uh, they are going to continue the oppression. And that makes a lot of sense, too, because one of the things, one of the rules as far as interpretation is the fact of understanding its literary context. Knowing the Psalms sure. is heavily influenced by poetry. And then not only that, if scripture is writ mainly written by Hebrew people with a Hebrew context and a Hebrew understanding and backgrounded, we do well to understand the Hebrew idioms figures of speech that would be relevant to their day and everything as well. Sure. And so as a dispensational, I love reading everything literal unless the context dictates otherwise, which in literary context and everything else, in that case, it doesn't. Like you said, there's a lot of anthropomorphism within scripture. Trees don't clap, things like that. Mm -hmm. It's just painting these word pictures, if you will. Yeah, now, this so, I'd make this, so I'd make the distinction between uh, reading the text literarily and reading it literally. We Sometimes we'll read it literally, sometimes we'll read it figuratively, but in any case, we will want to read it literarily according to the particular 
particular genre uh, that requires a certain way of looking at it or not. Exactly. So we read poetic literature, uh, you know, with, you know, figuratively, uh, we read historical narrative more literally, uh, et cetera. So it just depends upon what the genre calls for. Exactly. And one thing I've had to learn as far as historical narratives, one of the easiest ways for me to be able to interpret and be able to not only interpret, but also to apply is to not only look at a passage like we would in the New Testament, maybe Ephesians 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 10, talk about spiritual warfare and the armor of God, is look at the Old Testament historical narratives as a theme, as a, as a plot, as a scene in a movie to see what's happening over this entire scene and then di dissect it from there. Right. This last one is actually a personal one. Not Thankfully, I haven't went through this, uh, me or my wife's self, but we know people that have. But more so because I got into a discussion uh, with an atheist, and this was one of the things, one of the reasons why she had left the Christian faith. This was really the, the straw that broke the camel's back, the nail in the coffin type deal. And she said she had asked numerous people, uh, pastors, theologians, preachers she trusted, never could get a valid response, and they really wouldn't engage with it. I studied it, typed up, sent her a response, didn't really do much. I think it's more of a heart thing, but I can't speak with you without asking you this question, and there's going to be a lot to it. It's about a paragraph, but uh, like I said, this was probably the biggest one that I'm excited to hear about. Okay, so if we believe and teach that life begins at conception and that God creates all life, skeptics will point out Hosea 9 verse 14 in Numbers chapter 5 to argue that God immorally kills innocent life that he supposedly creates at conception. Hosea chapter 9 verse number 14 points to a judgment God pronounces on Ephraim on which the woman would have miscarriages. And in Numbers chapter 5, verses 20 through 28, it speaks of a test performed in which a woman is forced to drink a substance to determine if she had committed adultery and is guilty. And in verses 21 and 22 and verse 27 seems to point that if so, God would make sure a miscarriage happened on this woman. Could you explain what's going on here in Hosea and Numbers and whether or not this is actually God causing a miscarriage? Or what's going on? Yeah, um, the uh, a few things to be understood here. Uh, one is that we are not on a level playing field with God. Uh, we are not the author of life. If God chooses to take life, that is His prerogative. I mean, we will all die at a certain point. Uh, does that mean that therefore, if, if we die, that God is murdering us? Or, uh, you know, does that, you know, no, we understand that God, uh, you know, is the author of life and it is, it is his prerogative to take life as he sees fit and, uh, you know, according to his own purposes. Uh, so what is a prerogative for God is not a prerogative for, uh, for human beings. It's sort of like uh, maybe working at a company. A person who is a treasurer, the person who writes the checks, and somebody says, "Hey, I should be able to write checks too." Uh, you know, why? Do, what makes that person so special? Well, that person is particularly 
qualified, that person has a certain office or role to do that, that other people don't have access to, they can't uh, do that. Um, and so we recognize that there are certain domains that belong to one person over against another and how much more for the God who is the creator of the universe, who creates life, who also allows creatures to die, who uh, even may bring an end to their lives, uh, that there are certain judgments that may fall on people uh, because they have acted in a certain way. Now, we're not in the best position, you know, given we're outside of this covenant between God and the nation of Israel, where God promises that there will be certain judgments that come, uh, warfare, uh, the, the city will be besieged, uh, there will be uh, miscarriages, there will be famines and so forth. Those are things that come precisely because the people have disobeyed the voice of God and that could be reversed in dramatic fashion if the people will simply repent, like you have even God telling the nation that there will be cannibalism that takes place in, you know, like Jeremiah talks about women eating their young when Jerusalem is besieged. Well, they could have cooperated with the Babylonians at any time, given themselves up willingly, and there would have been no such consequences. And Jeremiah was urging them to do that. So yes, there were these conditions, but they were not listening to the prophets, just as the uh, the, the young men of Bethel didn't listen to Elisha, the prophet. So, so this is when it talks about you know, miscarrying and so forth, and we can go into the Numbers passage, which is simply talking about the, you know, the abdomen uh, uh, being you know, bloated and so forth. And, and yes, I suppose if the woman were expecting, that would uh, lead to, uh, to, a, uh, you know, to the, the death of the, uh, of the unborn child. But again, well, some people look at this with horror, but if a woman has not committed adultery, then there is no reason to fear. Uh, everything, you know, that there is no uh, problem with this woman. And, and yes, she should be uh, frightened if she has indeed committed adultery, uh, and that this test would show, would reveal that. But, uh, but in terms of the, in general, the, the whole issue of abortion, think about how even the whole process of, you know, there are many spontaneous abortions. So it's not as though these are particular cases. This is, in a sense, part of the natural process. The Lord made a very good world. Uh, was it perfect? I would say, no, it wasn't perfect because, say, human beings were uh, created uh, mortal, but God sustained them in their uh, mortality uh, until they rebelled against God. Uh, that's why they couldn't eat from, didn't want them to eat from the tree of life. So mortality was simply part of it. Uh, the people had to subdue the earth. Uh, this was an indication that the earth had, that there were certain forces at work that kind of pushed against uh, human beings, and so they needed to push back to subdue those forces. And I'd say that the way that the, the God has made it the created world. There are these things that are going to uh, happen, in, in, well, in one, in light of the fact that it's, it wasn't a perfect creation to begin with in terms of, yeah, we didn't come with resurrection bodies, for example. Uh, that's going to be uh, coming later on in the second creation, the new creation. But when it comes to the, you know, even, you know, in the, as a result of the fall and spontaneous gener you know, abortions uh, taking place, um, this is, part of the fallout of the kind of world in which we live. And so, so rather than, uh, than blaming uh, God, uh, just seeing these sorts of things as reminders of living in a fallen world. It's sort of like what Jesus says in, in Luke chapter 13, where when he refers, when there's a, 
you know, Pilate had killed people in the temple, uh, these Galileans, or when a tower uh, of Siloam fell on Israelites, it killed 18 of them. Jesus said, were these worse sinners than the rest? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So rather than trying to find what was the reason for this, uh, recognizing these are things that happen in a fallen world, and to make sure that we are rightly aligned with God, that we also make sure that we are repenting, lest we likewise perish. I love how with almost all of these, if necessary, you pulled in the covenant that God had made with Israel, uh, specifically the Mosaic covenant and everything, because I think that's crucial to understanding a lot of these issues as well. And so that's pretty much it. The 12 questions that I had and everything. Is there any closing comments you would like to make before we end up finishing this interview? Um, no, thanks very much for the opportunity to join you. It's been a, been a pleasure. Well, everybody, I just uh, thank you, Dr. Paul Copan, for just being able to spend some time here with us and everything. We'll get this out on the podcast audio as far as the channel as well. And uh, I believe you have a website. It's, it's what, paulcopan.com? Right, yep, so, C-O-P-A-N, yeah, dot com, paulcopan.com. So I'll go ahead and have a link in the description here as well and uh, go check out his ministry and everything else. And so for those of you who are watching it, thanks for checking out. God bless.